just don't be afraid. You know, if you're transitioning out of the military, you've got good basics under you about leadership, about being part of a team, and that matters. Um, you know, sometimes on the civilian side, they don't really recognize it sometimes, but they will when you're the hardest worker in the room, when you are the one who's trying. I mean, it's your life. You have to go out there. Don't be afraid. Get uncomfortable. And don't be afraid of making mistakes. So what? Live and learn. Who cares? You got this. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. My guest this time is a Marine Corps veteran. Out of high school, she went to Texas Tech. When she graduated, she tried a couple jobs, but they just didn't do it for her. Growing up, her dad, who was a Navy corpsman during the Vietnam War, had always told her, you should join the Marine Corps. And so in 2001, she did. She ended up in OCS in the summer of 2001, and she was actually in TBS on 9-11. After completing TBS, she didn't get her first choice, which was Intel. She got her fifth choice, which was air traffic controller. After four years of doing that, and the prospect of a set promotional path that didn't really appeal to her, she got out. Spent another period of odd jobs in what she calls her lost period. But then she found nursing. She went to Georgetown and got her degree. And she's a little over a decade into it. Today, she's leveraged her experience in the nursing field to have a job as a case manager as well as a life care planner. Also, in 2022, she started her own podcast, The Black Sheep Nurse, where she interviews other nurses about their experiences in the field of nursing. It was a fun conversation, and I know you're going to enjoy it, so let's get into it. Here's episode 131 with Erica Browning. Talk to me about where you grew up. Where's hometown? My hometown is Paris, Texas. So I was born in Houston. We moved to Paris when I was two. And that's where I went to high school, graduated high school. So grew up in Paris, Texas. How big of a city or a town or? Well, so the town is about 25,000 people. It has not grown one person <laughs> since my dad was a child. More people trying to get out than get in? Well, it, you know, it's a wash. And so, but the county itself is about 80,000. But Paris is like the hub city of the county. Okay. It's so, um, I, I consider it a small town, but it's still, it's certainly not small town Texas. You know, when people think one stop sign and 2,000 people, it's a little bigger than that. What took your family or your dad to Paris, Texas? He's from there. Oh, okay. That's where he was born and raised and grew up. And so he had gone to Houston to work a little bit and came back. As far as your immediate family, brothers, sisters? I have a sister. She lives in California as well, up near, well, it's called Sebastopol, but it's north of San Francisco. Got it. Yeah. And what did mom and dad do for work? Um, Dad, gosh, he did lots of things. What did he do when we were in high school? He owned a boat business for a while. Um, he worked. Um, is Paris near water? We have a lake. Okay. Pat Mays Lake, Paul. It's very big in the county. But, um, so yes, it were fishing boats. They weren't like big yachts or anything like Got it. that. They were like Skeeter 
boats that have that metallic on the side. Um, fishing is very big there, like bass fishing, that sort of thing. I remember a friend of mine telling me who lived um, near Lake of the Ozarks. And he said, opening day of fishing season, there were actually people who would show up with just a canoe with an attachment for an outboard motor because all they needed to do is go fast enough to get to their fishing spot first. <laughs> do you remember that show? Oh, gosh. Dukes of Hazard. Yes. Uncle Jesse. Yes. Uncle Jesse has a house or used to. Gosh. He's Denver nice. Pile. Is that was that his? I believe that's his proper name. He had a house in Paris, Texas, and he hosted an annual bass fishing tournament at Pat May's Lake. In it wasn't Paris, Texas, but Lamar County. So yes, it's very (laughs) (laughs) it used to be anyway. Texas has a a reputation for football. Is does the city of Paris have a a powerful football team? Are they known for their football team? Well, that depends on who you ask. So Paris (laughs) actually has. I, back when I was in school, we had four high schools, and at the time, the highest was 5A. It was like 1A, 2A, 3A, 5A, and the 5A were like the massive schools in Dallas. We were a small 4A school. So there were two 4A schools. There's North Lamar High School. That's where I went. Paris High School, those were both small 4A schools, and then two smaller ones in the county. It was Chisholm, Prairie Land. There may have been some little other ones, but that's about it. For you, you mentioned sports. What sports did you play growing up? I played, uh, well, back to football. So our North Lamar High School, they were terrible. Oh, okay. I I forgot that part of it. Yes. (laughs) Paris High had a good team. I think they won state in the late 80s, Paul. It was a very big deal back then. But um, fast forward to what I played. I played volleyball, basketball, and softball. And I was mediocre at all three. But I loved it. It. From the academic side, were you a good student? Yes, I was. I think, what did I graduate? I think I was seventh in my class. We had 175 in our class. So I wasn't always academically inclined. I think I started getting serious about it when I was in high school. But did you have goals for yourself as far as adulthood when you got out of high school? Did you have plans? I wanted to go to college. And at first, I was going to go to medical school. You know, when you're in a small town, you hear about, well, what are you going to, you know, what are you going to do with your life? Well, there's like a handful of things that you quote unquote hear about. You can be an accountant. You can be an attorney. You can be a doctor. And then we did have a local nursing school, but I didn't even think about that. And so when I went, I always loved the sciences. I loved math and science. That's what I excelled at. It's what I enjoyed the most. And so I thought, well, I'll go to nursing school or I'm sorry, uh, medical school. And so I went to Texas Tech. That was my college experience, you know, went right after I graduated from high school and I did the prereqs. And, you know, at some point during my journey, I was like, "Mm -mm, no, I don't want to do this. (laughs) So, so I switched gears. This biology stuff is hard. Well, I just didn't, there was no passion there. And if you're going to go the distance on something like that, that's going to take you a decade with all of your schooling and residencies you probably should be passionate about it. (laughs) And I wasn't. And so um, I changed degrees to Spanish. And I... Seems like a logical progression. Logical, right? I (laughs) wanted to speak another language. And um, I made biology. So I was going to major in biology. So I just made that my minor and then took all my Spanish classes. And I graduated with a degree in Spanish. Did you have a plan for using that Spanish degree? I did. Um, I was going to be a teacher. Okay. And then, so I graduated in four years with my degree in Spanish. 
And then after that, you could do like graduate classes to get your teaching certificate. And then if you continued, you could get a master's in education, but you just had to do these four credits that I did over the summer. And then I did, um, what was it, your student teaching in that fall. During that student teaching, I was like, nope. <laughs> <laughs> this is not the path for me. I am not doing this. Such an amazing experience working with those young kids. Well, I was young. So I was in a high school and these kids, what were they, 15 or 16? And I graduated young. I was, what, 21? So for me, I didn't think there was a big enough. I still looked like them. I still I didn't act like them. But I think I don't think it was far enough apart, my personal opinion. Maybe if I were going to teach in elementary school or something. But that wasn't the path that I took. And I did it. And I'm like, mm -mm, I don't want to do this. And then my dad was actually a Navy corpsman in Vietnam, and he went, he deployed with the Marines in Vietnam. And so he had always talked to me about being in the military, and he said, you know, you should join the Marines. And this was out of high school. And I'm like, Dad, that is so dumb. I'm not doing that. <laughs> well, fast forward. And then I, I don't know what piqued my interest in it. It just did. I had a friend that I was taking a, an English class with, and he was enlisted. And um, he was going to college and then he was going to go to officer candidate school. And so that's how, I don't know if that's what piqued my interest. I'm not sure. But then I looked it up and I started reaching out. I reached out to the local officer selections officer. I think they're called OSOs. And um, went to a couple of, you know, those weekends where they yell at you, give you a taste of what it's like. And then that was it. That's what I was going to do. As far as going back to the the medical aspect, mm -hmm. did you have people in your life who were in the medical field that were kind of mentors to you or did it just something you kind of picked out of the thin air? It's just something I picked. I was always good at math and science. And um, I guess that's what appealed to me at the time. I think ER, the TV show, was really popular. I'm certain that had something to do with it in terms of exposure. Because what else can you do with math and science? Well, with math, you can be in engineering. You can, but I didn't really have, even via TV, I had no exposure to that whatsoever. And um, engineering sounds like such a topic that TV shows are missing. Right. <laughs> it sounds so scintillating. Good TV. Um, I don't know why, but that's, uh, that's what I had decided I wanted to pursue. Other than your dad mentioning the Marine Corps, any other factors in your life towards the military? Nope. We were always just a very patriotic family. Um, but no, there were no other outside forces. I think my grandfathers had served back in World War II in some capacity, but I, don't, I never talked to them about it. They died when I was younger, so it's not like it was this big force that was influencing me in that way. It was just my dad. And so I'd heard his stories of Vietnam, you know, from Vietnam. I'd seen pictures and his ribbons. And um, I think, was he involved with the VFW back then? Maybe a little. But it wasn't, um, you know, we just kind of talked about it. It was accepted. Um, it was a thing he was proud of. And so, yeah. It's always lingering in the back of my mind. So you went to a couple of the weekend things. They yelled at you. Didn't deter you from going in. No. Nope. What year did you go in? I went in. So I finished that teaching, you know, the student teaching that I that hated. That you love so much. I hated it, but I finished it. That was December 2000. And then 
I think, was it during that time? At some time is when I decided to go into the Marines. And so I had that sort of semester in early 2001. Well, I need to pay bills and do something in the meantime besides work out and prepare for this. So I did substitute teaching to, you know, pay the bills. And then I went into officer candidate school in June 2001. And where was that at? Quantico? Yeah. And going in, did you have an idea of what you were going to do? Did you know what you were going to be doing? No, it doesn't matter if you have an idea of what you're going to do (laughs) because they're going to decide for you. I, this is what I, I think make Marine makes Marines different in general is in terms of at the officer level. I'm not sure how it works in the enlisted. I think it is a little different, but you just really have to want to be a Marine first and foremost and you really have to think that they're the best whether you know they are or not you have to think that you have to believe in that you want to have to lead marines and be proud to be a marine in general and then accept whatever comes after that unless of course there's different contracts i was on a ground contract where i think i had like 19 choices aviation you know you're going to fly something um but even then you don't get to pick your airframe unless you're at the top of your class and then there's the law contract so, but I was under the ground and, you know, whatever happened, happened. So, you know, you go through your, well, you make it through OCS and then you go to the uh, TBS and, um, you know, at the end you make your list one through 19 or that I had 19 at the time. I think men had 24 uh, selections or choices. Women had 19. For you, once you got there, mm-hmm. what was that? And I've I've used the word before. What was that transition like for you going from civilian to military? I had no problems with it. I I really didn't. I, I, sounds so dumb. I enjoyed my time. I mean, yes, it was hard, but I felt like it was for a worthy cause, something that I believed in versus sort of floundering about. And so I did not have trouble with the transition. Were you thinking career when you went in? Ah. Not necessarily. I thought, you know, we'll see where this goes. And then, um, you know, I made my list one through 19. My first one, I actually really had an interest in the intelligence agencies. So you had signals intelligence, aviation intelligence, and then there, I think there was human intelligence, which was not available to women because it's mostly, I think, recon, something to that effect. And so was, I really wanted signals intelligence. That was my first choice, but there was one <laughs> for 180 of us and i was not number one so I, I did pretty well but too bad the number one guy wanted it so uh and then i didn't get aviation what was number two i think it was aviation intelligence i don't remember what number three was number four was communications i had no idea what any of this meant i didn't know what i'd be doing um you know in the marines it's a little smaller so you know well i'll be east coast west coast or japan like you have some idea in that way and um and then number four was communication and then number five was air traffic control and i actually the way they do their selections i actually got communications but there was a guy who his prior enlisted he was communications and so they felt that would be a better fit for him which i'm sure it was so air traffic control there, Lucky there you. you go. Lucky you. Do you know anything about it? No. I was. That was going to be my follow-up question. No. So how did it even rank to fifth on your list? I guess I liked it better than the other <laughs> 14 options that were left. I don't know. Honestly, I don't know. I thought it was the most interesting. 
I've had a previous guest who who used a, a great line. He said, a lot of my decisions were, well, that sucks less. Yep. You know, so it must yes. have been when you were making your list, you know, yes. the others sucked more than air traffic controller. Yes. You know, that really resonates with me because I like to, I think of myself as sort of a bottom line kind of person. All right. What is the bottom line here? And can I accept that? And if it's like, ooh, no, well, then that get you know, talk, that's how you do your sorting, you know. Do you remember what was your absolute bottom of your list? I think it, I think it was probably supply. Okay. Or admin that just didn't. I wanted to be out doing something, um, but I, yeah, I, I don't really remember. But I think it was some, I'm sure it was like admin supply. I don't even remember what the other options were. Who knows. <laughs> Who knows? So you knew nothing about air traffic controller when you got it? No. Between OCS and TBS, were you deployed by the time 9-11 happened? No. So June 2001 is when I went in. I graduated August 2001. 9-11 was September. So we all went. I think we started the basic school, which is a six-month course for all Marine officers. Um, That was, did we, I think we started in August, like late August, early September. Yes, because while I was at TBS in Quantico, Virginia is when that happened. And we saw the smoke from the Pentagon, you know, from when that plane hit. And we, I actually remember we were in our rooms doing field day and, you know, people had their TVs on while you're cleaning and stuff. And it popped up on the TV and it was just shocking. It was absolutely shocking because none of us, you know, like some people saw, say, oh, I saw 9-11. I went in because of that. That was not any of us. You're like I was already there. <laughs> I was already there. We had already decided to sign up. And in my mind, I wanted to do that Mediterranean cruise. So I knew I wanted to go to the East Coast. I didn't know what I was going to be doing, but I knew I wanted to go to the East Coast and do the Med cruise. That didn't happen either. So, <laughs> so where was your first duty station? I so I graduated TBS. I went to NAS Pensacola for a training because Navy does all the marine aviation training. And then I went to Marine Corps Air Station Beaufort, South Carolina, in the swamp. Sounds like an amazing deployment. Well, from there, so I was on track to get my wish. So I w- went East Coast. I was in Beaufort. I got onto the MU. Um, what, the MU list for air traffic control. They take one first lieutenant. I was slated. But then Iraq happened. And so our entire uh, MU, I mean, infantry, everyone got a one-way ticket to Iraq instead. We did not cruise the Mediterranean at all. I think I got to stop at an airport in Ireland, Kuwait, and then Iraq. Yeah. So when did you were in Iraq by when? Left June 2004 and came back January 2005. And silly question. So as an air traffic controller mm-hmm. in the Marine Corps, yes, is it like what you're picturing in civilian airline or aircraft air traffic controller? You're basically just monitoring the planes in the air? So, yes. So if you think of, there's two sides of air traffic control for military, I'll say Marines because I don't know about the other services. There's the station side, what is called station, and that is what you typically think of. The radar, the tower, the ground. They're talking to planes in the air. They're talking to planes on the ground, et cetera. Then you have the ground side, and there are two different units. And uh, that is, the ground side is where you deploy. So if I'm going to go on the MUSE, 
there was what part of that is air traffic control for Marines? Well, it's just one little unit, six, headed by a first lieutenant, which is what I was. And you go over and you set up little expedition, expeditionary airfields. So we had one TACAN, which I this, this was 20 years ago. I don't even know if they still <laughs> use this stuff. But um, you have one TACAN. And so we went to Iraq and we were plopped. It was Fob Kalsu. It was very austere at the time. And we made, we got a gunny to get us some quad cons. They found us stairs. How did they find us stairs if they welded together? I don't know. Just ask a gunny. They get you things. You don't ask questions. We put a guard shack on top and we had radios. And so we are the ones who made the airfield procedures and um, helped with the airfield planning and which ways that, you know, aircraft have to be directed, which ways the wind coming from and best takeoff and landing. And we had a little pitiful little runway, but there it was. We did what we had to do. And um, we submitted that to... I don't know, higher so that anyone who came to Fob Kalsu knew that there was a tower there. These are our airfield procedures. Tower-ish. <laughs> it's a ta- it's tower ex- light. It's our expeditionary <laughs> tower. Um, it's a really tall ladder. <laughs> yes. But uh, yeah, so that's what you do on a MU, part of the ground side. And then also air traffic controllers, there's a whole detachment. They have the, the big radar. So say you're going to, this is like a hardened location where you're going to set up the massive radars and have massive airplanes and have a massive airfield they they do that too so and then the marines it's called fleet what was it called fleet assistance program you would fap back and forth so you had to go everyone every air traffic control marine officer or enlisted had to go on the station side because you had to get your qualifications ground tower radar final that sort of thing and then you would fap back and forth and people would have to take turns you know being in the station and then going over and doing this abroad so everyone is still subject to faa rules and regulations and that sort of thing for you for you being on the ground am i understanding correctly that basically your sphere is basically landings and takeoffs and then once they're in the air they transfer over to a larger station so for the Mew, we just had our little, what was it, Class D airspace. I don't even remember what it was called now, but just our little airfield airspace. And then once they left us, they would go to, like you said, a bigger, and that could be another Marine detachment that had the big radars. Um, it just depends on who was operating at the time. I think there were a big Marine, there were big Marine detachments doing air traffic control with their radars. I just wasn't part of them. Once you were doing the job, how'd you like it? Um, I liked it. Uh, one big difference in Marines for air traffic controllers. So every service does it differently. I'll back up. The Navy, their air traffic control officers, in order to be an air traffic control officer, you first had to be an air traffic control enlisted. And then, like, you cannot be an air traffic control officer unless you're enlisted first. That's Navy. And Marines are a little different. Officers your enlisted personnel, air traffic controllers, often had way more qualifications than you. And it was like that by design because the officers, their function was not to stay on the station side. It was to deploy and go over here because the officer career track was didn't stay in air traffic control. Once you hit major, you went, your MOS broadened to like air, early warning air defense and other radars 
um, and you were no longer an air traffic controller. Your MO has changed. Like uh, an air traffic control officer was 7220. Once you hit major, it was 7204, and you kind of broadened out, and it was more about deploying. So for me, the enlisted guys and gals who were air traffic controllers, you they often had to sign a long, longer contract because they knew they could go out and immediately start making a lot more money for the FAA. Officers, I mean, maybe you could do that, but you had far fewer qualifications than the enlisted Marines because that was their function. You get the title, but probably a, a lot less actual hands-on experience, I would imagine. So for officers, like there's different, in air traffic control, there's different qualifications you can get. In the tower, there's ground, which is you talking to airplanes on, taxing them, and then you hand them off to what is called a local controller, and they're the ones who are responsible for everything in the air. Officers and enlisted alike would get ground qualification, and then there's another little admin position in there, Um, but officers would get the ground qualification, and then they were done in the tower. Enlisted would go on and get that local qualification, because that took like nine months to a year to get. And um, you're not going to waste when that is ultimately not the officer's destination or function. They're not going to waste a year of training time, right? Because there's only so many hours you can train someone. You got to get your enlisted Marines in there, get them qualified, because that is what they'll be doing. And for Marines, you had air traffic control, but you also had other responsibilities. You had to get people to the gas chamber, get them, um, you know, their rifle, their pistol. You had other things to consider the radars the equipment um you had other things to do so you're immediately more in an admin position just making sure the team's running efficiently they have all the equipment they need they have all the training they need and for the maybe i'm overstating it you're you're jumping in when it's dire emergency um well you (laughs) Technically, you wouldn't even want to do that because you're controlled by the FAA. So if you don't have a local qualification, you should not be talking to airplanes in the air, period. But, um, you know, when you're deployed, sometimes you figure it out. Now, when you're back stateside, Mm -hmm. how does your job change? I mean, is it still pretty much the same as far as officer enlisted or because everybody's probably just in one tower, correct? Or at least that's their operational space? Well, that's where they go to get qualifications. So if you're on the station side, you had, I mean, there weren't that many officers. You would have an officer per crew and you would, uh, gosh, I'm trying to remember exactly how it worked. I mean, lieutenants like myself and officers in general, you went to the station to get your quals and then you moved back, period. And that was kind of your duty. You weren't really in charge of a lot of Marines on the station side. Have you heard the recording or the story of the SR-71 Blackbird and their little back and forth with the civilian air towers? This is years ago now. Mm -hmm. But basically, it was that thing of, you know, calling out airspeed and, and, you know, basically having fun with whatever civilian air tower was was monitoring them. But where I was going with that is, so when a military airplane is flying within the united states mm-hmm. are they primarily in con- in contact with civilian faa towers or military towers depends on where they're going so if you're at like camp pendleton and you're because camp pendleton has a tower that's run by marines and then miramar has a tower that's run by marines i, I guess they both have radars i'm not sure but if they're going to go outside 
of that airspace, they're going to talk to civilians, civilian airspace. Got it. For you, and you talked about the career, the the natural career path mm-hmm. for an officer in the air traffic control division. Yeah. Did that not appeal to you to stay in for a career, or was there ever a point where you kind of teetered on maybe let, let, you know what? Let me extend this. No, and that's exactly why I didn't continue because for next over so the first lieutenant, um, they did they did what I did, and that appealed to me, and I liked that. Um, the next step, once you hit captain, you would be would it be the company commander of a detachment on this field side and then you'd be in charge of the radar and then those maintenance marines who are not air traffic controllers they're they work on radars that is their mos and the air traffic control uh marines as well and um that, i just it didn't appeal to me i mean like you know i knew nothing about air traffic control when i got in <laughs> <laughs> so i didn't know what the career progression would look like and then once i got in as a first lieutenant i enjoyed doing that and beyond that i was like mm, that does not appeal to me so i got out four years mm-hmm. coming up to your exit out did you start planning for what you were going to do afterwards I, poorly yes <laughs> says, I mean, says I, most <laughs> i had a plan um you know they they take you through all that transition um classes and what is it called taps taps that's what it is and i mean that was fine but that's that's not going to do it so when i got out i was like oh i'm going to be a personal trainer because i'd run a marathon i was really into fitness and i and i did that i got my certification and i hated that too so i i feel like i love the fact that everything you've done nothing's really appealed to you oh you do well i mean how are you supposed to know Give it a try. You got to give it a try. And you can't be afraid. And you can't be afraid to fail. And I think that's what holds most people back is they feel like, oh, I don't have it all figured out, so I'm not going to do it. Uh, Wrong. In my opinion, that is the wrong thing. If it is of interest to you, go for it. Try it out. See if you can step your toe in the water because you'll never know. People can sit across from you all day and tell you what it's like until you get in and do it yourself. You're not going to know. So I did that, and it was very salesy. I'm not salesy, Paul. <laughs> I am not. I'm more of the. Uh, so do you want it or not? Yeah. Because if you don't, don't waste my time. Exactly. If you don't, <laughs> I'm fine with that. But I'm gonna move on. I'm not gonna. Um, You're doing great to this point, but if you train with me, I could get you to this point. <laughs> oh really? You don't want this? Fine. I don't care. Next. No, that's terrible. But. I just didn't care for it. How so, long did you do that for? Oh gosh, was it a year? And then I oh, you actually made it a year. Was it six months? <laughs> I don't Maybe, know. I don't know. It's six months to a year, something like that. And I feel back like, in Texas. Mm-hmm, I had moved back to Texas, and I feel like I, I'm glad. I want people to hear this that in case it doesn't work out the way you thought, and you didn't enjoy what you thought you'd enjoy, it's okay. You'll figure it out. You might do some things that you're like, mm, nope, I don't like this either. But, uh, and I did that. You know, I did the personal training. I think I was, was it I, a nanny for a while? I just felt lost. It was my lost period. And that was really tough. And um, that's another reason I wanted to come on the podcast because I wanted other people to hear that story. It, you might feel lost and that's okay. Um, 
but I, after that, I moved back to North Carolina and I worked for Merrill Lynch for a while as a financial advisor and, um, which is also sales, Paul. Again, right in your wheelhouse. It's only like more, like millions of dollars. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, I'm glad I did that. I learned so much. I did that for over two and a half years. And then that is when I decided I did some volunteering. I went back to my math and science roots because I'm like, this is not good. This isn't working out. I'm not good at it. I mean, I was good at the finance part. But getting people to give me their million-dollar portfolios, I did not excel at. And so um, I picked up some kind of part-time jobs, and I'm like, this sucks. You know, I'm smarter than this. I can do more than this. I want to do something. Pausing at that Merrill Lynch real quick. Yeah. What type of additional training or schooling did you have to go to to do that job? Nothing. Oh, okay. So they hire you on and then they put you through, is it your series seven? Like they put you You, through some training and a series seven is where you can do investments for people. And then I think there's also a series six. I don't know if I, that might be insurance. Maybe I got that one too. Um, So there's no college education or college degree that's required to do it. No, no. I think most people don't know that. They probably should. I don't. I yeah. didn't till this till this moment. Yeah. I think a lot of people see, you know, the uh advertisements on, you know, the golf shows for <laughs> the golf or Merrill Lynch and all these things and they assume when they reach out to a financial advisor that they've gone to school for it or they have some MBA yes. from some high college. Not so. Not so. So really what your your skill set is more sales. Than financial at that level, at that level, yes. At the local level, if you're going to walk into at Wells Fargo or whatever into their investment branch, at that level, yes. Now, once you if you went to New York and were working on the bond in the bond department or whatever, I'm sure you had to have more education, but in terms of finances, but no. Now, what drew you back to North Carolina from Texas? Uh, my boyfriend at the time, okay. he was living there, and so um, yeah, I kind of just felt a little lost and so I decided to go back to school and um, because I had the minor in biology I was doing prerequisites for nursing school because I had uh, I decided I was going to volunteer at a local hospital just to see you know do I want to go back to medical school do I want to go to nursing school what do I want to do and um, when I was there I went to the ER what is the name of the hospital I can't remember but it was in Wilmington North Carolina and when I saw the nurses they were the ones in charge. They were the ones running the show and making stuff happen. And I was like, that's what I want to do. And so I got my prerequisites for nursing and I did a couple other classes to get a, just finish my bachelor's in biology from UNCW. And then after that's when I went to nursing school. And what year was that? I started, I got into an accelerated program because I already had, well, at the time I had two bachelor's degrees and, uh, I went to Georgetown University. It was their accelerated program, and I started in January 2010. That's when it was. And when were you working as an ER nurse? I started that in July 2011. How? I, and I'm I'm going based on your your past pattern. Yes. Did it resonate with you? Did you enjoy doing it, or did it quickly kind of lose its luster? Well, I'm still a nurse, so but that, not in the ER. No. <laughs> So I was in the ER and I loved it. I loved being in the ER, but I did get burned out. 
Um, and so I went up to the ICU, which was also really, really difficult. Um, I was in D.C. at the time, and we were at a massive hospital that had six or seven ICUs. It was the trauma hub in the region. And our patients were really, really, really sick. And it was really, really, really hard. But I've never learned more than I learned at that hospital. And so um, I went up to the ICU. Then I went back to the ER. And then I moved out to California. And I did a travel assignment in the ER and stayed in the ER until, was it 2018? And that's when I moved over to case management, nurse case management. Were you always a traveler from the get-go? Or did you transition into a tra- a for those that don't know, yes, Traveler is basically, you can get placed at virtually any hospital depending on who needs you, correct? Well, the way it works as a traveler, so you usually need to have at least a year or 18 months of experience. And traveler nurse contracts are about 13 weeks. That's typically what they are. And you can go anywhere in the nation. If you're like, hey, I want to go to Seattle for 13 weeks. You know, I'm young, unattached. I want to travel the nation. You can just pick a place. I want to go to New York. I want to go to San Diego. I want to go to Seattle. And if they have, you get with a travel agency or a travel nurse agency and they find these contracts for you and they're like, hey, we've got a 13 week in Seattle. You can go here or wherever. Is that what got you out to California? So I came out to um, California for a different reason, but that's when I came out here, I was like, you know what? I'll do a travel. I'll do a few travel assignments because you can do them for for a year before you have to either move or you have to become a resident. Like you can't get that tax-free break anymore. But when I was in DC, I, it was not a travel assignment. I was just staff at Washington Hospital Center and then Georgetown for a short time. And then when I came out to California is when I took my first travel contract. And that was at a local hospital down in San Diego. And so after that, um, I ended up taking another travel assignment elsewhere and then doing agency, which is where you just kind of pick up shifts. You sign on with a local agency and they say, hey, we have an availability tomorrow. Do you want to work? It's very flexible. So and then I eventually went on to staff in Orange County in the ER. And your connection to California prior to coming out, had you been here before? Mm -hmm. No, I was married at the time. And we came out here. And so you, you said now you've transitioned into case management. Mm-hmm. So what's the difference? So ER, ICU, anything at the bedside, med surge, you're working with patients at the bedside, giving their medications, doing Lord knows what else that they need done. Case management, you're no longer at the clinical bedside, but you take all of your nursing knowledge and you're coordinating care for them. So I do... Um, nurse case management for workers comp so i help find specialists i go with my patients to their appointments i coordinate translators transportation pt ot medications um surgery requests dme which is durable medical equipment so if they need a wheelchair if they need a sling if they need a power wheelchair um depends on i now work with catastrophically injured patients so spinal cord injuries traumatic brain injuries they just have a lot of needs and it's your job to Coordinate all of that. Make it happen. Any, it's basically logistics. That's what it is. <laughs> make sure the right places and the right people end up in the right spots. Yes. With the right stuff. Yes. Any desire to specifically work with veterans or, or was that an opportunity for you? I didn't. I didn't know of any really opportunities unless you're going to work for. I think Pendleton has a hospital there. So unless you wanted to work for the hospital there, which I know civilian nurses can do, 
I had a friend who I think she I think it's hard to get on there. Um, she was tried for a long time. I think she eventually got on there, but I was kind of done with bedside. And so I didn't know of any other way, still don't, to work with veterans specifically. Going back to when you got out of the Marine Corps, mm-hmm. was there ever a point where you went, ah, I made the wrong decision, I should have stayed in? No. No. I think there's there's some things that I probably would have liked to have done if I had taken a B billet and stayed in the D.C. area just to learn more. I think that would have been interesting. It probably would have been an option at the time. I just didn't really realize it at the time and I was ready to get out but no I don't regret um getting out a lot of people ask me if they're like oh do you regret going in no never never I had a really great experience I really did and I enjoyed my time and I learned so much and it's made me who I am now to do case management or any of the level that you're doing in nursing, what's the degree requirement? Is it a bachelor's degree or master's degree? No, it's not a master's. Um, it really depends on where you go. A bachelor's is may or may not be preferred. Um, and in fact, I think for my position, it just you just have to be an RN. And so that's probably an associate's degree. I know they're kind of going away from associate's degrees now and requiring bachelor's. But it's certainly not a position that requires a master's in nursing. And does every hospital, for the most part, have an equal position to what you're doing? And is it called case management? Um, I would say all hospitals have case management departments. Um, or they might be called something else, like case management or discharge planning. That's also a wing of case management. What I specifically do, I work for a case management company. And it's in workers' comp, which is very different than the hospital setting. And so I really, I work remotely and people are like, oh, you work from home? And I'm like, well, kind of, but I go with my patients to their appointments. And so my company is all nurse case managers. And you're like, well, how does that work? Well, workers' comp insurance companies, you know, they have a ton of patients of people who get hurt at work. For some of them, they want a nurse case manager on that file to go with their patient to kind of move it along, help coordinate care, especially if it's difficult and um, help get them back to work, essentially. And so they will contract with my company to assign a nurse case manager to it. So that's how that works. What was the catalyst for you to, to go from being an employee of a hospital to wanting to start your own company and doing this on your own? Well, this is not my company. This is, um, I, I had a friend in the ER that we worked together and she left the ER to do case management for this company. And I was like, oh, because I was, you know, feeling burned out. and Not you. Uh, right? No, <laughs> never. Um, and uh, I said, do you like it? Because she had switched to that, too. And she said, yeah, I actually really do. And our boss at the time also worked in our ER previously. And so I contacted, she gave me his contact information. I contacted him. They didn't have any openings down in San Diego. So he said, but let's just stay in touch. And so I kept working in the ER and... Um, eventually they had an opening and I got it. Do you set the geographic area that you want to work? Could you work a a broader geographic area with the company you're with now? No. So typically when you're assigned a file, you're like, Hey, you get this new patient. Do you accept? Um, the carrier will have travel maxes, maximums because they have to pay for your travel. So they don't, they're not going to pay for a case manager to go to Arizona because it's going to cost them more. They'll just find a case manager in Arizona. So, I have San Diego. However, it's really 
like a four to five hour round trip travel max. So I can go up to Los Angeles. I do come up to Temecula. I do go to Riverside and sometimes Palm Springs. So it is wide in that way. But for the most part, you're staying in the Southern California area. Yes. The furthest north I've been is Bakersfield. Any other pieces of advice that you could give for this career as it relates to somebody who might be, well, let's go all the way back. Was Mm -hmm. the medical field, i.e. nursing, available to you when you went into the Marine Corps? And was that something you just didn't consider or was it not an option? Not an option. So the Marines don't even have nurses. They don't have medical. They get their medical from the Navy. So as a Marine, it was not an option at all. Um, What I would say, if you are in the military and um, you're a nurse and you're transitioning out, there are so many things that you can do. Paul, I actually have a podcast. I don't know. We're going to get there. (laughs) But the whole point. Don't don't mess up my script. I know. But the whole point is to showcase all of the cool things you can do with your degree. It is the best degree in my honest opinion because it's so versatile there's so much you can do with it your knowledge is special and it doesn't exist everywhere so that's what i say when people are like oh you get burned out that's horrible no every single nursing job that you've had will make you a better nurse it makes you more well-rounded you know more it was not for nothing it's just different and that's what's great about the nursing degree you can get burned out and just do something else within nursing you don't have to start over again well i think and i I don't mean this sarcastically but i think you're a good model for the profession of nursing because you of all the previous iterations that you've tried and said nope that didn't work for me nope that didn't work for me but yet something about nursing stuck to the point that you found a way to say, okay, I might be burned out on this aspect. Let's look at what else is available. Yes. And that's one of the great things about the nursing degree is uh, sometimes nurses will get this idea in their head that, oh, I have to be, I'm an ER nurse. I have to be an ER nurse forever. No, you don't. I like to empower nurses and say, it is your degree. You get to do whatever the hell you want to do. And if you don't want to stay in ER nursing, guess what? You don't have to. And here's a million ways in which you can use it. So fine. Pick something else. Who cares? You're still a nurse. You're still using your knowledge. Try it. Try it. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. So let's pivot on to your podcast. Okay. Good marketing. What is it called? What's the name of it? It is called Black Sheep Nurse. And how'd you come up with the name of the podcast? Well, I've always felt a little bit like a rebel, you know, not really an outcast, but, you know, I don't know, different. And um, certainly being a female in Marines is different. And then um, it can be different in the nursing field. Like I said, a lot of people think you have to stay within one specialty. And if you don't, then you're a failure. Try again. Not buying it. That doesn't work here. No. You get to do all these cool things with it. And that's what the whole podcast is about is I think I have 52 episodes up now. And it's interviewing nurses doing different jobs. In different fields and i have so much feedback they're like oh my gosh i didn't even know you could do this how do i get in touch with this i'm like here you go here you go here you go how, i'm sorry go ahead how long did it kind of rattle around in your head to to do a podcast before you actually started doing it i would say six months i got this idea in april this is 2022 and I don't know, I was sitting around with one of my other nurse friends and we were just talking about our other nurse friends because nurses seem to bang <laughs> together. 
And they're like, and we were talking, we're like, she's doing what? That's a job? And then we, the more that we talked about it, I was like, this is ridiculous. I mean, like crazy, good, ridiculous. And I was like, and I love podcasts because I'm in the car all the time. So I just listen to podcasts all the time. I'm like, well, why don't I just start one? And then every week I'll just interview someone doing something different. And then they'll tell us what their nursing journey was. And I've had a couple, I've had a U.S. Air Force nurse on there. I've had an Army one, which even within the military, there's a million things you can do with your nursing degree. But transitioning out. As long as you're not in the Marine Corps. As long, yeah, forget <laughs> it, the Marines. It's not going to happen for you. Um, but uh, I forget what I was saying. Well, you're just talking about how the idea came about and the yeah. way you started looking into oh, there's a lot of other job opportunities. But then that grew into, let me make other people aware of everything that you can do in the nursing field. Yes, because what do you hear about the most in terms of nursing? It's burnout. I mean, they don't want to do this anymore. They get burned out. It's, It's not that they, well, I mean, you can get compassion fatigue and fatigue and caring for people, but it's typically the pace and the rush because I know in the ER, it's like, boom, next, 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 next. I just put a stroke for you in one. I just put a heart attack in two. Next. Do you have the discharge paper on this one? Do you have, and it's boom, 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 boom. And you're like, I need a minute. And you don't get a minute. So too bad. And then you go, 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 which some people love that and they feed off of that. And that's great. And I loved it too. But then I reached a point where I'm like, I'd rather use my knowledge elsewhere doing something else. And so for the whole point of the podcast is, is, hey, you're going to get burned out. You might want to do something else. Well, here, because underlying all of that is I love options because options lead to freedom. So if you feel ha- that you have something else that you can do and go to, you won't feel trapped. You won't feel stuck and you won't feel as burned out. You'll be like, oh, OK, I've got options here. Why don't I try this? Why don't I try that? So that's what the whole thing is about is to illustrate options with your nursing degree and say go forth it's your life go conquer and you've already mentioned the fatigue that comes from for those working in the ER that fast-paced environment Mm -hmm. obviously is going to have an impact on you you mentioned compassion fatigue and I'm assuming that is those nurses that are working on floors or units where they're prolonged interaction with somebody who eventually passes away no, it, that happens to all nurses on all units where you're so busy and so fried that I just don't have time to have the compassion that I want to have. And then you just get more and more burned out. And then when you try to show compassion, you don't have time to show the compassion. And when you're a caregiver like that, it, you know, it just, you can burn out. And that can happen with not even nurses. Say if you're a family member and you're taking care of a sick loved one and that's what you're doing 24-7 with no breaks, you're going to have fatigue. You're going to have caregiver fatigue. You're going to have compassion fatigue. You need a break. Like go get someone else to take care of your loved one and go to the mall or go to lunch with a friend. Go work out. Do whatever. You have to take breaks. Where I, idea. where I was leading with it is, so obviously there's a greater awareness of the mental health component related to veterans. First responder community mm-hmm. is increasing. Nurses being a component of that first responder community. But from your experience now, if 
I'm doing the math correctly, you're roughly almost 15 years into it? 12 and a half. 12 and a half. Mm-hmm. Are you seeing an increase in the, not just the awareness of it, but moving towards treating nurses and their mental health aspects? I don't see it a lot because of my job, this, the way that it's remote and I work from home and I work for my patients that get hurt at work. So I don't see a lot of nurses. I do see a lot of that on social media, you know, other accounts, you know, posting. And what I see a lot of is um, violence against nurses and healthcare workers, especially in the ER because people are, you know, unwell to put it charitably. And um, so I don't see a lot of that. That's not to say it doesn't exist. Going back to your podcast. So once you got it up and running, Mm -hmm. how did you find doing a podcast? Did you find that it really fed something in you that you didn't realize? And the one question I often get is, how much time does it take you to do a podcast? So throw that back at you. Yes. So... I love doing the podcast. What I struggle with is having a day job and doing the podcast and having another business that I do. So I run out of time, which increases my stress. (laughs) So for me to do the podcast, gosh, like per person, like how much time does it take me? I would say my interviews, the actual interview is anywhere from 30 minutes to an hour. But then you have to take the time to find them, email them, get them on your schedule. For me, I send a list of questions that are very general, but just so here's what you can expect. And then they respond to me. I send them to I send them the link to the room because we do everything online. And then um, we do the interview, which is my favorite part is in actually talking to nurses. After that's the editing, which I despise truth be told and um, because it's so much fun i hate it i hate it but that's not to discourage anyone listening you might love that but you probably will find a part in the process that isn't your favorite and editing is not my favorite but i do it because i don't know maybe that's the marine in me i have a goal i sometimes i'm not gonna like everything i'm doing and you do it anyway um i would like to get to the point and I have a little bit where I just started being on YouTube and I have handed that off where I don't edit videos. I, I just draw the line. I'm like, I'm just not doing it. I refuse to do it. So that part I have handed off, but I still do edit the audio and upload it myself. But it, hours. That's that's where I was going with it. I, I don't yeah. I, I encourage anybody who's got the the desire or not even the desire. If it's an inkling in your head to do a podcast, yeah. do it because you do it. you don't realize how much you're going to get out of yes. having these conversations with people. For you, who's been, now you do all your interviews remotely, but mm-hmm. who's been the furthest away that you've had to arrange scheduling? Yes, I have two. I had one in Germany and a one actually just posted, was it this week? Uh, she's in New Zealand. Yeah. And how, well, one, how did you find them? So the one in Germany is Kate. Um, she and I worked together in the ER in DC. And then her husband, they moved to Germany. I think he works in IT and he was going to just work over there for a couple of years and they were going to come back. Well, they didn't come back. And so they're still over there. 
And so I wanted to share that perspective. You know, this is what an American nurse working in Germany, this is what it's like. And it's actually one of the more popular episodes. And then, so I knew her. That's how I found her. Uh, the one in New Zealand, that was Hannah. I found her on Instagram because she's more, so she has a big social media following. She might, I'm sure she's on TikTok, but I, I live on Instagram mostly. And um, she posts all these like funny video, videos, you know, it's not making fun of nursing. It's making fun of scenarios that happen in nursing. And it's hilarious because it's what every nurse is thinking. And so I have been watching her for a year. And I thought this would be so fun in a fun conversation. And it totally was. We had so much fun and everyone has loved it. So I, I just reached out to her. How? I reached out to her on Instagram. I said, hey, will you come on? And she said, Yes. And for anyone who's listening who wants to do a podcast, absolutely do it. Be prepared to be told no and be prepared to not hear anything and then be prepared for it to not stop you and then just keep going. That's what I've done. Not everyone says yes. Not everybody says yes. And what I would add to that is the people who do say yes, yeah. you're going to have unique experiences because somebody's going to bring something to the table that you were completely not expecting. Yeah. And then you'll look back and go, that was a really cool time that I had with that person. And a store, an aspect that I wasn't thinking that they were going to have in their life turned out to be a great 15 or 20 minute conversation. Yes. And that is my favorite part about the podcast is talking to people and learning their story. And you, I, from every single podcast I do, I learn something. Like, how is this possible? Is nursing is nursing? No, it is so varied. And that's why I like nurses to tell, how did you even get into this? And because um, there are plenty of nurses who get into it and they're like, mm, I don't like it. Well, guess what, sister? You're not the only one or dude. It's mostly women, but, you know, it's okay. And they didn't like it when they first got into it either. And now this is what they're doing. They found something they enjoyed. This could be, it like gives hope. You know what I mean? You mentioned you have another business. What's that? It is called, it's life care planning. So it's called EB Medical Planning, which is most people have never heard about. It's yet another way in which you could use your nursing degree. So what, what is life care planning? Well, a scenario. Say someone is walking down the street and they get hit by a car and now they're this horrible spinal cord injury patient. Typically when that happens, especially in California, you're going to sue, okay? That patient is going to get an attorney. They're going to sue either an insurance company or a company or, you know, if this person's really wealthy, they'll just sit, sue them personally, okay? So they have an attorney. Whomever is being sued will also have an attorney, okay? This person is catastrophically injured. And so, for example, if, if it's a spinal cord injury patient, they're going to need medical attention for the rest of their lives, period. And so what a life care planner does is they're retained either by the plaintiff, which would be the patient side, or the defendant, which would be employer, insurance company, whatever. Each side will have one. And depending on what side you're on, you'll pro if you're on the plaintiff side, you'll call the patient. You'll have an interview about where they are now. They will send all of the medical records that you're going to review and you're going to make a timeline, chronology, whatever. And then you're going to call their physicians um, or maybe a designated physician. And they're going to tell you, this is what I foresee them needing for the rest of their lives. And then you put that in a plan 
and then you do the costing research of how much every single one of those things is going to cost and that and then you submit that to the attorney that retained you and that is their life care plan and it you boil it down to like this is the number and it goes to i don't know if you'd say justify it it goes to settling on what part of the settlement will be and what that final number will be and so that's what a life care planner is you're like well who all can be a life care planner well you're reading my mind because that was my next question right because no one knows i didn't know as a nurse you think i went to nursing school knowing this no so um doctors so it's typically a physical medicine and rehabilitation doctor and you're probably like well what what is that well Oftentimes, so if that spinal cord injury patient, they go and they have surgery by a neurosurgeon, okay? They make, the neurosurgeon makes sure the bones are healed. They make sure the hardware is good. Does that neurosurgeon see them for all of their therapies for the next two years? Nope, sure don't. That patient needs to find a physical medicine and rehabilitation physician. That, that physician is who orders and oversees their therapies for the next two years. So a doctor who can be a life care planner, doctor, nurses, because this is basically what I'm doing now. I'm just coordinating all of it. Life care planning is taking it a step further and assigning uh, costs to it. And then on top of that, you're also a testifying expert. So you can be called to be, you can be deposed. You can be called on the stand and, um, you know, they question you, they cross-examine you, so, so on and so forth. So doctor, nurse, physical therapists, Occupational therapists, because they st- they both work with patients in rehab, so they see what is needed. And then what is called a vocational re- rehabilitation counselor. So that's, I didn't know what that was either until I got into case management. And it's a whole thing. Like you go to school to be a, voc- uh, what is it, a vocational rehab counselor. You can get a master's. And it's just wild to me what all exists out there. But those five areas can be life care planners. And you came to learn about it through doing case management work? Yes. So I was going to, you know, I have colleagues that I do this with. And, you know, we don't work in the same office, but we're all over Southern California. We chat, we talk, we share resources. Because you're like, hey, I've got a patient in Riverside. I need this kind of doctor. Do you know anyone that's really good? Like that happens all of the time. And then in Southern California, there's a networking group, a case management networking group. And we have lunches. I mean, I'm not in charge of it. I just go. And we have lunches, was it quarterly, where you'll have a speaker come and they tell you about, I don't know, dental or vestibular rehabilitation. You listen, you eat lunch and you shake hands, kiss babies, that sort of thing. Networking. And um, the lifeblood of business. Right. It's kind of. It it can be people shy away from it because they're like, oh, it's kind of salesy. It doesn't have to be. If you look at it that way and you hate sales, you'll fail. If you look at it as. I'm just going to genuinely be myself because I believe in myself and I'm just going to meet people. You'll have a great time and everything will work out. Side note. At any rate, so I go to these quarterly meetings and one of my colleagues, I was introduced to another colleague that worked for our company and she does it and she's highly successful, highly respected. And she said, Erica, you'd be great at this. I'm like, what is this? Like, I didn't, didn't know. And, um, She's like, well, this is what it is. And she said, join this group. And she said, come to the conference. I'll introduce you to everyone. So now she's my mentor, which I I tell her all the time. I'm like, I don't deserve (laughs) what you're doing, but I'm so grateful because she's, I really believe in mentors. You know, having someone where you can just send a text. You're like, hey, this is what's going on. Is this right or wrong? 
And they can be like, oh, because they have so much experience. No, do this, this, and this. You're like, oh, okay. So she's my mentor. So she's been mentoring me. And that's how I learned about it. And um, she, you know, I learned more about it. And I'm like, I'm going to do it. And so I am a pro at starting ideas, getting ideas, and starting them. So I have my company, my website, and off we go. You mentioned the case management group Mm -hmm. association. If there are any nurses listening who would be interested in attending those who are not case managers, is it a requisite that they have to be a case manager to attend it? It's not a requisite to be a case manager, but only case managers would find it fruitful in any way. So if you, I mean, I guess you could go if you weren't a case manager, but. um, I guess if you were thinking about trying to evolve into case management. If you're looking to evolve into case management, I would just email me and then I will happily talk to you about it because I don't think you'll get that by going to the group. Now the group, what is it called? Rehabilitation. It's R-N-C-N. I'll have to look it up on my phone. R-N-C-N. Is it .org? But you're welcome to go on there. You can join. I think it's $50 a year. They'll send you emails. You can go to anything you want. I always, if you have an interest, actually, I'm glad that you said that. If you're not a case manager, you may not find it all that appealing. But if you're like, hey, I'm interested. I want to join a group. I want to meet people. I am all for that. I'll, um, once we're done here, I'll make sure that you have it. And um, join it. Show up. Email me. I'll show you around. I'll meet you. I'll shake hands. You can sit next to me. Well, I think that that's one of the things that I believe in, and I try to get this message out, is if you have an idea of something else you would like to do, go start exploring. Meet and find, find and meet people who are doing that job. Pick their brain. If there are regular meetings, see if you can go to those meetings. Start getting an idea. Is this something that I might really want to do as opposed to, and again, I'm not being sarcastic, don't just try being a a personal trainer and then once Mm -hmm. you get into it, you're like, man, this isn't really what I want to do. Yeah. So I am all about that. In fact, I gave um, a webinar to alumni at Azusa Pacific Nursing School, was it a couple of weeks ago? And the title was, um, gosh, what was the title? Is your nursing degree working for you? That was the title. And then it was, uh, the subtitle was the importance of building your network, which is exactly what you're talking about. And so towards the end, you get to the part of like, well, how do you build your network? And then number one was LinkedIn, which I need to get better at. Truth truth be told. Two. We all do. Uh, right. Two, um, go to conferences. Three, talk to people who are doing what you want to do. And go talk to them. Yeah, don't be the 24-year-old Erica. Even though that was a great experience, I learned from that. But go talk to them. See what they're doing. And then they're like, oh, I don't want to meet people. This is going to require some effort on your part. It is not going to fall in your lap. It is your life. Take that bull by the horns and go do these things. So join the conference. Join the group. Find the person that's like, hey, I want to talk to her. I wonder if she talked to me. Email me. Find out. Who cares? What like? Well, what if they don't talk to me? Well, then you move on. You find someone else to talk to you. But you won't know unless you try. You won't know unless you try. Exactly. You have to try. And the one thing, the the thing I would add to that is, and it doesn't have to be the first time you go, but you can't be the wallflower. You can't be the person who just kind of disappears when you're there. Granted, you're going to be gathering information and you'll hear information that will benefit you. But you need to start. You you hit the nail on the head. 
it's not sales. It's about growing your brand. And you, the person, are a brand. And if you want people to know about you and your abilities and your qualifications, you need to start interacting with them. Yes. And even if you can't wrap your mind around a brand, if, if that's too big for you, just think about, hey, I'm going to go meet like-minded people. I'm just going to go meet people. That's it. And I'm going to be myself. I'm going to make new friends. I mean, if, if all of that is, if networking, if that word's too big for you, it's too much of a buzzword, you don't like it, it gives you the ick, fine. Branding, I don't know about that. Forget all of that then. Just go, hey, I want to go meet like-minded people. I want to shake some hands and maybe make some new friends and learn some things. That's, that's all you're doing. And then you never know what you'll learn. Or who you meet. Or who you meet. Yes. And it's that, that old saying, it's not what you know, it's who you know. Exactly. You never know. I never would have met my mentor. Her name is Brooke. If I hadn't gone, gotten uncomfortable. Because I promise you, everyone, this is about transitioning out of the military. I promise you, you going to meet new people is not the hardest thing you've ever done. Promise. So, and the whole point of <laughs> One of the great things about be, having the military on your resume and being in your back pocket is that they know you've done hard things and get used to getting uncomfortable and doing hard things. You're, you're already doing it. Just do it a little more in this way. Not being somebody who's happy with the status quo. Mm -hmm. What's in your future? What, what do you see on your horizon? I, growing these two things, the podcast and the medical planning. Yeah, grow it big. What's your? Do you have a goal in mind yet for your podcast? What What do you? What would you say is the next iteration of it? Well, I just started YouTube in January, so that was a big deal for me. Um, I really want. There's also a blog that is not well developed, so <laughs> that would be the next thing is to really develop that and then really grow my email list. And start sending out, you know, weekly emails with link to the blog, a link to the YouTube, link to the podcast and link to other resources, that sort of thing. I mean, I have those things in place. It just needs to grow in number. You need to get a few more hours in the day. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so that's another, that's a good point. When I started the podcast and my life care planning, I was working a lot as a case manager. I mean, a lot. And I really had to make a decision, you know, the next year. I'm like, I want to have time to work on these projects. I did not have time. I had to be willing to make less, cut back my hours, which means I made less. And just know this was not going to be forever. I've got goals. I've got a solid plan. I just need to move forward in that. So if anyone else finds themselves in that position. Any last little piece of advice for those listening? Just don't be afraid. You know, if you're transitioning out of the military, you've got good basics under you about leadership, about being part of a team, and that matters. Um, you know, sometimes on the civilian side, they don't really recognize it sometimes, but they will when you're the hardest worker in the room, when you are the one who's trying. I mean, it's your life. You have to go out there. Don't be afraid. Get uncomfortable. And don't be afraid of making mistakes. So what? Live and learn. Who cares? You got this. I appreciate your time. I Thank wish you all you. the best. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate you watching. 
But before you go, if you like the video, please hit that subscribe button. Also, any comments are appreciated. Thank you.